Welcome to the teaching ministry at Calvary PSL. Please join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, remember. Well, on this special Palm Sunday weekend, I thought it would be great for all of us to take a mental break from all the coronavirus craziness and remember Christ. And so in this message today, I specifically want to focus on uh, some of the meaningful moments during that last week of Christ's life, namely his triumphal entry, his last supper, and his crucifixion. And so it's time to remember that Sunday when Jesus went riding into the city of Jerusalem on the back of that young donkey. It's time to remember the Thursday evening when he gathered together with his disciples uh, to enjoy that very special Passover meal. And then it's, it's time to remember today, on this Palm Sunday, it's time to remember the Good Friday, when he poured out his blood for the sins of all mankind. And so that last week of Christ's life was filled with passion and with sacrifice and with incredible, amazing love. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to remember that last week and we're going to do it through two things. Number one, through the scriptures, and then at the end of the sermon, through uh, communion together. And so let's begin in Matthew chapter 21, and let's talk about the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ, Matthew 21, verses 1 through 9. I hope you're looking at a Bible. I'll go ahead and read out loud. You read in your hearts. Matthew 21, 1. Now when they, Jesus and his disciples, drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and he will send them at once. And so when Jesus and his disciples were closing in to Jerusalem on that Sunday before the Friday of his death, uh, what, did, what he did is he sent two of his disciples into a local village to retrieve the animal that the prophet had spoken about so long ago, the foal of a donkey. That's what Matthew tells us now in verse 4. He said, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king, look at that, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And so the retrieval of this foal, this young donkey for Jesus, it fulfilled an ancient prophecy given by Zechariah, listen to this, over 500 years before the time of Jesus. Let's go ahead and read it from Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
And so because Jesus knew that he was the long-awaited Messiah, he knew he had to fulfill that messianic prophecy given 500 years prior when Zechariah told the Jewish nation, hey, your Messiah's gonna come one day, your king's gonna come one day, and here's one of the ways you're gonna know he's coming. He's gonna come on the back of a young donkey. And so Jesus sent two of his disciples to retrieve this fall. Entering into Jerusalem on a donkey also... Um, Jesus did that also to make sure he didn't send the wrong message to the Romans. You see, in the ancient Middle East, um, if a king was ready to declare war, he rode into war on a horse. But if there was a king and he wanted to make peace, what he did is he rode in on a donkey. And so the Lord was not there in Jerusalem on that day to declare war against the Romans. That's not what he wanted to do. That's not why he was there. He was there to make peace, to make peace between God and man. Everybody look at me, look at your screen. To take the hand of the Father and to take your hand and through his broken body and shed blood to put those hands together, to make atonement, to make reconciliation. That's why he was there. And so now we pick it up in verse six. It says that the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and Jesus sat on them. Verse eight, most of the crowd. Now, you know, sometimes we watch B-rated Jesus movies and we think there's like 15 guys out there in bathrobes. That's not the idea at all. I mean, these are hundreds and even thousands of people in the Kidron Valley between the Mount of Olives and Jerusalem. And so verse eight, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others, look at this, cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And so it was customary in that, in that time for citizens of a kingdom to place their garments on the road as their king approached. And so as the king, in this case Jesus, rode on his donkey over um, their clothes, what that symbolized was that they were in submission to their king. And that's what many people Hundreds, maybe thousands of people did as Jesus made his way down the western slope of the Mount of Olives, down into the Kidron Valley on his way into the city of Jerusalem. Imagine if you're in Washington, D.C. and you see the presidential motorcade coming and you take off your coat and throw it down, you know, before Barack Obama or Donald Trump and the, the limo rides over it. Well, maybe that's not the best illustration. We live in a democracy. These people... They wanted a monarchy, and they wanted Jesus to be their king. And so they threw down their coats, and not only that, they threw down branches. Now, now John's gospel tells us these were palm branches, and if you're brand new to the Bible, that's why we call this weekend Palm Sunday weekend. So they threw their cloaks on the ground, they waved palm tree branches and threw those branches on the ground, and not only that, they shouted lines from Psalm 118, a messianic psalm. In other words, a song about the coming Messiah. You need to know, if you're, again, if you're new to the Bible, that the psalms, 
By the way, if you've never read Psalms, you've got to get into the Psalms because the Psalms are Israel's and the Christians' hymn book, Psalter. They're songs. And so what we believe is that these people were not just shouting, they were singing. They were singing about the coming Messiah. And, and what, what, what were the lyrics of their song? Look at it again in verse nine. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And so they're celebrating. Now, as many people celebrated as Jesus approached, not everybody in the crowd was too excited. You see, there was these guys named the Pharisees and Luke's gospel tells us that they looked at Jesus and they said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. In other words, teacher, stop them from shouting and singing from this psalm. And so the Pharisees knew that Psalm 118, at least portions of it, was about the coming Messiah and they did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus looked down from the donkey onto the Pharisees, right into their eyes. And he said, and I quote, if these, my disciples, were silent, the very stones, can you imagine this? The stones would cry out. And I, I, I've told you this before. I wish the disciples would have just stopped praising for one Minute, if they would have, the stones on the western slope of the Mount of Olives would have picked up the song where they left off. The stones would have started shouting. The stones would have started singing. It would have been the best rock concert in the history of the world. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. As you heard Pastor Andrew say, the word Hosanna means save now in Hebrew. Save now. Son of David, that's talking about the Messiah. What are these people literally saying? What they're saying is, Messiah, save us now. But there's a problem in the text. You see, the problem is that the deliverance that many in this crowd wanted was not the deliverance that Jesus came to give. Think about this with me. This is Passover. Passover commemorated um, God's deliverance of his ancient people, the Israelites, from their Egyptian slavery. Now, here we are in the Gospels about 1,500 years after the time of Moses. And now you've got God's people, the Jews. And what are they saying? What they're saying is, Hosanna, save now. Messiah, save now. Not from the Egyptians, but from the Romans. And they really believed that Jesus was the one who could deliver them from the Romans. They're probably thinking, man, he gives sight to blind people. He, he causes people who are deaf to hear. He causes crippled people to walk and, and, and raises the dead. There's Lazarus over there. Can you believe he was dead and he called forth Lazarus from the tomb? The guy got up and walked out and somebody else says, yeah, and I saw him feed 5,000 men plus women and children with just five loaves of bread and two fish. If he can do that, he can save us from the power of Rome. Messiah, save us now. Let's all march to the Antonia Fortress right now. Let's beat up on those Romans right now. But here's what they didn't get. They didn't get that Jesus wasn't there to conquer the Romans. Jesus was there 
to conquer sin and death. Jesus was not there to deliver them from physical slavery. He was there to deliver them from spiritual slavery. He wasn't there to physically save their nation. Ladies and gentlemen, he was there to spiritually save their souls. And if you're watching or listening right now, the question you gotta ask is, is my soul saved? Because the same thing that Jesus wanted to do 2,000 years ago, he still wants to do today. He's in the soul-saving business. And the way that he saves is that he allowed his body to be broken and he allowed his blood to be shed. And that is symbolized in what we call the Last Supper. The Last Supper. Okay, so take a right in your Bibles, just a few chapters to Matthew chapter 26 now. As we talk about the Last Supper, I hope you have the communion elements ready to go toward the end of this service. But let's talk about it from the scriptures first. Look at Matthew chapter 26, verse 17. Matthew writes, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, well, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, well, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. All right, so what in the world is this whole Passover thing? What does the Passover meal even mean? Well, the Passover meal, as you see there on your screen, is an annual dinner that reminded Israel of God's deliverance of their ancestors from Egyptian slavery. Let me give you the background story, especially those of you who are new to the Bible. For most of you, this is a reminder, but it helps shed some light on this thing that we call the Last Supper. And so way back in the book of Exodus, uh, we read about how the children of Israel, the Hebrews, were in slavery to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Now you need to know, and I know you know this, God hates slavery. He always has and he always will. And so he sent Moses to Pharaoh with a message. Moses goes to Pharaoh, looks at Pharaoh the king, and he says, the Lord said, let my people go. Right, Pharaoh's got all these Israelites, these Hebrews, they're his personal slaves, slaves of the nation. The Lord says, Moses says to Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, well, who's the Lord? No, you know, like, get out of here. And so Moses is like, all right, have it your way. And you know the story. The Lord sent 10 plagues upon Egypt to deliver his people from their slavery. Now, during that time, you know that Pharaoh hardened his heart over and over again. I know somewhere in the text it says that God hardened his heart, but you need to know that Pharaoh first hardened his heart before God ever hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so after nine plagues, God said, I'll send one more plague, the 10th plague, and this is the judgment of the death angel. And so because Pharaoh had a hard heart, the death angel was coming at midnight. He was gonna fly over all the homes throughout the land of Egypt and he was gonna kill all the firstborn sons. Now you need to know that he would have, this death angel, he would have killed all the firstborn sons, Egyptian and Hebrew, 
But what you need to know also is that the Hebrews were given instructions on how they could escape this incredible judgment. And so each Hebrew household was to take a lamb of the first year without blemish and without spot. And at twilight, they were to kill the lamb. And then they were to allow the blood of the lamb to drain, to drain into a basin. Then they're supposed to take some hyssop and dip this leafy bush thing called hyssop and put it inside the basin of blood. And then after that, they were to apply that blood to the door frames of their homes. And so you hear, here you see an illustration of what that might have looked like. And by the way, as they strike the lintel with the blood of the lamb, the lintel on top, and the two doorposts on either side, you can kind of, in your mind, see a cross. And so after they did that to their doorframe, they were to roast the lamb and eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And so the Hebrews followed these instructions, and at midnight, sure enough, the death angel came. Now, now ladies and gentlemen, please hear this. God says the wages of sin is death. And if you don't repent of your sins and turn to Christ, there's judgment coming. You see, faithful pastors who teach the whole counsel of God, they don't just say, tell you the good news of the good news. They tell you the bad news before the good news. And the, good, the bad news is the death angel came at midnight. He flew over all the homes in Egypt and he went in to the Egyptian homes. This death angel went into these homes and he killed the firstborn sons of every home in Egypt. But when he flew over a section of Egypt called Goshen, where the Hebrews lived, the death angel looked down. He saw the blood, the blood of the lamb, and he did not go into those homes. As he flew over the homes of the Hebrews, and saw the blood kind of in the shape of a cross, the blood of the lamb. The death angel did not go in. He passed over those homes. And that's, of course, where we get the word Passover. So all the Egyptian sons were judged. All the Hebrew sons were saved. And when Pharaoh woke up in the middle of the night and he saw that God's judgment had come to his people. And he looked over and Pharaoh saw that his own son was now dead. He freaked out. He called Moses in in the middle of the night. He said, get out, you know, bless me as you go. I know your God is real now, but get out. And the result was the Exodus, Exodus, second book of your, in your Bibles, of about 2.4 million Hebrews from the land of Egypt. Now the Lord wanted his people to remember all of this. And so he commanded them to observe a special meal throughout their generations, the same meal that the Hebrews ate before their exodus. And this is the Passover meal now in your Bibles that Jesus and his disciples are eating together. It's now known by Christians as the Last Supper. And so someone says, all right, so what does all this have to do with Christians? Well, everything. <laughs> Everything. Look at what Paul wrote to the Christians in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 5, 7. He said, 
for Christ, and in your living rooms, I want you to say the next three words. Go ahead. Our Passover lamb. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. And so, hey, he's the Passover lamb, not just for Jews who believe in Jesus as their Messiah, King and Lord. He's also the Passover lamb for Gentiles like me and most of you who've accepted Christ as our Savior and Lord. And he saves us, ladies and gentlemen, again, not from physical slavery, but from spiritual slavery, from slavery and damnation of our sins. And so the millions of lambs that were sacrificed from the time of Moses to the time of Jesus, about 1,500 year span of time, the millions of lambs that were sacrificed were all typological of Christ's sacrifice. They all culminated in Christ's sacrifice. And that's why John the Baptist, when he, standing there at the Jordan River, saw Jesus Christ walking up to the Jordan River, he said in John 1:29, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so when you and I make this choice to turn from our sins and to turn to Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, he applies, look at me, he applies his blood, metaphorically speaking, I know, but still he applies his blood to the lintel and the doorposts of our hearts so that when we take our last breath, and the Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die and after this, the judgment. And so when we take our last breath, God looks down, he sees the blood of his son applied to our heart and his judgment passes over us. Yes, this occurred in the Old Testament, but man, does it have New Testament application through the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus sits down with his disciples to partake of this Passover meal. We're going to skip down to verse 26 of Matthew 26. So please look at Matthew 26, 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it. And I know some of you are reaching for your communion elements. That's a little later. And so after blessing it, he broke it. He gave it to the disciples and he said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. I believe it's Luke's gospel that says of the new covenant, which is poured out for many, look at this, for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is saying all this in the context of the Passover meal. He says in verse 29, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And so you need to know that during this dinner, Jesus transformed the meaning of the meal from remembering God's deliverance of his people in Egypt to remembering God's deliverance of his people from their sins, from remembering God's salvation of his people from physical slavery to remembering God's salvation of you and I 
from our spiritual slavery. And so, ladies and gentlemen, the Passover meal has been transformed into the elements on your coffee table, the Lord's Supper, and the Old Covenant has been replaced by the New Covenant. Listen to this. Some of you need to be set free from the law, and you got to listen to me right now. God has made a new covenant with us, a new agreement with us. No longer do we have to come to him through a system of laws. No longer do we have to come to him you know, through atonement or the temporary covering of an animal sacrifice. No, now we come to Christ by faith, and when we do that, he atones us with his blood. His broken body and his shed blood washes away all of our sins. And so what's symbolized by those elements on your coffee table or on your dinner table, what's symbolized by the bread and cup became a reality at a place called Calvary. And so turn one more chapter to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. We're going to look at the crucifixion. As you're turning to Matthew 27, I have my own little personal tradition that I do every year during this time, sometimes on Good Friday, sometimes before. I, I turn on the Passion of the Christ and I sit and I watch it again and again every year because I want to be reminded of the incredible love that Jesus showed to us and what he paid so that we could be saved. I know that this Friday, uh, Pastor Mike Lawrence is gonna give a devotional. We're gonna air it at 3 p.m. this Friday, Good Friday, about the significance of the day. And I encourage you to be looking for that. But if you're in Matthew chapter 27, let me set it up for you. And so after Jesus had been betrayed by Judas, in the garden, after he had been arrested, after he had been spit on. Can you, can you guys imagine the eternal son of God being spit on by people he created, people he formed in their mother's wombs? After he had been spit on, after he had been lied about, falsely accused, after they blindfolded him, and kept punching him over and over and over again until his face, according to the prophecy in Isaiah 53, which was written 700 years before Christ, it says at the end of, actually at the end of chapter 52 that his face was so marred he couldn't even recognize him. After all of that, after his back had been thrashed open by the flagellum in the Roman soldier's hand, after they pounded a crown of thorns into his head and drove nails into his hands and into his feet. At 9 a.m., they raised Jesus up on the cross. And three hours later, at high noon, something very strange occurred. We'll pick it up in verse 45 of Matthew chapter 27. It says now from the sixth hour, that's 12 p.m., there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour, that's 3 p.m. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out 
with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Verse 50, here it is. Here's our redemption. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and he yielded up his spirit. And so for three hours, from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m., everything went dark. And then about 3 p.m., Jesus cries out from Psalm chapter 22, verse 1. He's quoting David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay, so what happened during that dark time? Here's what happened. Our Lord Jesus Christ became an offering for your sin and my sin. And he suffered and he died all alone. Here's what we gotta come to grips with. We have to come to grips with the fact that our God is holy. Our God is a just God. And a just God demands that all sin is punished. Now, now listen to me. Please listen to me with not just with your heads, but with your hearts. A just God demands, how many sins? All sin has to be punished. All right, so what's the punishment? Well, I quote it every Sunday when you're here. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is, and I know most of you are saying it out loud right now in your living rooms, death. Death, that's the punishment. And so what, what we gotta come to grips with is that God is a holy God. All sin has to be paid for. And so Jesus comes and what does he do? He knows we deserve the death penalty and he accepts the death penalty in our place. It's called the substitutionary atonement. It's one of the essentials of the Christian faith. And so our culture, as you know, our culture doesn't wanna hear about all this justice. Our culture doesn't wanna hear about God's holiness. Our culture, if they wanna hear anything about God at all, all they wanna hear about is God's love. But what they don't get is that our God is not just a God of love, our God is also a God of justice. And so in order to be consistent with his nature, fully loving and completely holy, in order to satisfy both his love and his justice, here's what he had to do. He had to send his son on a rescue mission. <laughs> That's what you call love. And then he punished his son instead of you. He punished his son instead of me. And why? Because that's the just thing to do. Someone once said, on the cross, God's love and God's justice kissed in the person of Jesus Christ. And we're the beneficiaries. You see, ladies and gentlemen, God so loved the world. There's his love. That he gave his only son over to death. There's the justice that whoever believes in him should not perish. It's a very real thing. But have, here's the good news, 
eternal life. Eternal life. That's what you call grace. And so what we've done is we've remembered Christ through the scriptures. Now we're gonna remember him through communion. And so I want you to prepare yourselves and your families, dads, moms, prepare yourselves. If your kids are, are old enough, they've received, you know for a fact that they have received Christ as their savior, they understood the gospel and received Christ, okay, that's, that's fine if they receive the elements. Um, but everybody needs to examine themselves. It says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. And so it's, it's imperative that we examine ourselves before we receive communion. And so if you're watching right now, and you're not sure, you know, that your sins are forgiven, you've heard the gospel. I shared it in my message. Here it is in a nutshell. We were all made in the image of God, but that image is marred because the Bible says that we were born in original sin, with a sin nature. We were born sinners and we chose to sin. And the Bible says the wages of sin, you already heard it, is death. That's physical death, that's spiritual death. Death, by the way, is not annihilation. There's lots of pastors out there that try to say that if you die and you're still in your sins that you just cease to exist. It's not true. Death is spiritual and eternal separation from God. That's the biblical definition of death. And so the wages of sin is, is death. And so you and I have got to come to the place where we accept the fact that we are sinners and we deserve to be judged by a just God. But here's the good news. God so loved us. He gave his one and only son, Jesus. And so Jesus, listen to this, fully God. What does he do? He enters by a miracle of the Holy Spirit into the womb of the virgin. He adds a human nature to his already divine, eternal nature as God. He's 100% God and 100% man. It's the mystery of the incarnation, but it's true. And he's born of the Virgin Mary. He lives an absolutely perfect life. He is that lamb without blemish and without spot. And then he willingly goes to a cross as our Passover lamb. And there he hangs for six hours. He becomes our offering of sin in our place and he receives the death penalty so we don't have to. And then he dies. Three days later, we'll celebrate it next weekend. He rises from the dead and then he ascends to the right hand of the Father. He's praying for you right now. Listen, the only way to be saved is through Jesus. You cannot be saved from your sins by trying harder or moral reform or turning over a new leaf or trying to be a better person. That's all man-made religion, it's all wrong. The New Testament teaches, God's word teaches that it is appointed unto man once to die and after this judgment, and man, you gotta have the blood of Jesus applied to your heart 
if you're gonna miss the judgment. You say, well, what do I need to do? Paul wrote the church at Rome. And he said, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord Jesus shall be saved. And so if you're willing right here and right now to turn from your sins the best way you know how and turn to Jesus Christ alone as your only hope of salvation, believing that he died in your place and paid for your sins and rose again, and you wanna receive him as your personal savior and Lord, I wanna ask you right there in your living room, wherever you are, maybe right now you're listening to a podcast driving down 95, do not close your eyes, but you can say this prayer from your heart to God's. And please hear this, the words of a prayer don't save anybody, it's the faith in your heart, your faith in Jesus. But say this to the Lord right now, say, dear Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know I deserve death. Your word says so. But I believe you came, Jesus. And I believe you died in my place for my sins. I believe you shed your blood. And I believe you rose again from the grave. So right now I turn to you, Jesus, sorry for my sins. I give my life to you. I receive your forgiveness. I receive the gift of salvation. I choose, Lord, to trust you. And I pray in your name, amen. And so if you meant those words of faith to Jesus Christ. The Bible says, if you call on the name of the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. His blood has washed away your sins. You're, you're a child of God. It's all by grace. You say, are you kidding me? I don't have to be a good person the rest of my life. Well, now the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. He'll help you live a good life, but no, your sins are forgiven. It's not that we do good works to be saved, Yes, we do good works. It's because we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone.